Lord, this is no small thing that we do. Let us not take this lightly. Let us not waltz into your presence with any sense of entitlement or worthiness in and of ourselves. There is none that can stand against you. We may not even stand before you and live were it not for your grace in welcoming and cleansing us. Were it not for the fact that we have your Son, Jesus Christ, the pioneer of our salvation, as you say in Hebrews 2, who has opened the way for us. There is no one who can stand before the presence of this holy, holy, holy God. But yet, You, by Your grace, have made us worthy. May we never get over the gift, the the completely astounding, undeserved gift that we get to have a relationship that is anything other than wrath and destruction with the great I Am. So now, Lord, oh, these lips of mine on my own are not worthy to speak to You, let alone speak on Your behalf to Your people. Would You enable me by Your grace as we open Your Word Would You shine Yourself through? Would You make Yourself unavoidable? May those of us who've given You the stiff arm and been like, yeah, God's cool, but... May that but just not even be there anymore. May we just be amazed by the goodness and grandness of Your presence this morning. We ask this in Your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Well, if you're joining us for the first time here at Cornerstone, welcome. My name's Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. It's been a little while since I've had a chance to be up here. But I have the pleasure to continue our series this morning through the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 6 today. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some ushers who would love to put one in your hand But in this series, we're spending the next couple of months in the book of Isaiah. Of course, we're not able to cover every passage by any means. But what we're seeking to do is to to grab key passages that highlight the main themes of the book. And that's why we'll be in chapter 6. So as you have your Bibles and you're getting them and opening up to chapter 6, I just want to take the first couple of minutes to set the stage for where we're going to go this morning. Over these last several weeks, Todd's begun our series by looking at the first two chapters of Isaiah. And what he called the cry for awareness. Um, Isaiah's wake-up call to the people of Israel saying, you need to wake up and remember what's going on because you have forgotten. You have forgotten both who this amazing God is and who you are in relationship to Him. So that's what we're going to do in this next series. Talk about who is this God that Isaiah cannot stop talking about. Who is this Holy One of Israel? The people need to be reminded, as we saw from chapter 1, God begins by saying, look, an ox knows its owner, a donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Verse 4, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. This was a big problem for them. And for many of us in here, this is a problem for us as well, isn't it? Isn't it often the case that it is easy to, we are so bound by our senses and what's right in front of us that it is easy to lose sight of both who God is, how grand He is, and who we are in relationship to Him. 
part of the reason, I think, especially why things were hard for the people of Israel to keep God in mind, to remember who He was, was because things were going really well at that time. The economy was booming. Their borders were secure. And their king, Uzziah, was doing a pretty slam-bang job of it. We were first introduced to this King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, who became king at 16 years old, it says. And he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. There was a lot of stability and longevity to his reign. Not only that, verse 4, it says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father, Am- father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of the Lord. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. 2 Chronicles 26 goes on to talk about the major victories that he won and the things that he did for the people. And then you can almost feel it coming. In verse 16, it says this, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Isn't that the case so often? That it's hardest to remember to trust God when things are going well. To almost begin to think, I got it. Or almost even to say, hey, thanks God, a while back there I was in a really tough spot. Thanks so much for helping me out of that. I think I'm good. I got it from here. There's probably much more urgent cases that need your attention more than I do. I'm good. To even start to think, not only are things good right now, but I've got some ideas about how I think I can make it even better. That's where Uzziah was. He had grown proud in his strength, forgetting that it was the Lord who established him. And it was to his destruction. It said he was unfaithful to the Lord in that he entered the temple to offer to the Lord burnt burnt incense on the altar of incense. You can read the rest of 2 Chronicles 26 to read that story of how Uzziah comes in saying, I'm king, I'm the boss, do what I say, I'm going to come in and I'm going to offer this incense, this pleasing aroma to the Lord in the temple. But in that account, we read of Azariah the priest and 80 other priests who come and stand in front of him and say, no, you may not do this. This is not for you, the king, to do. This is only for those priests who have been consecrated, made holy to draw near to God's presence in the temple. You are wrong in doing this and God will not honor you. And Uzziah gets angry. He's got this censer in his hand and he's like, how dare you tell me what to do? And immediately, leprosy breaks out across his forehead. He feels it. The people see it. And it says, the priests go, we got to get you out of here. And Uzziah says, you're right, let's go. And he flees from the presence of the Lord. And sadly, it says, he was a leper to the day of his death. He had to live in a separate house. His son had to take over rule of the kingdom because he was no longer fit. And he could never again draw near to the temple because he was now unclean. He forgot who God was. He forgot who he was to his destruction. The end of Isaiah or of 2 Chronicles 26, it says that the man who was recording the events of Uzziah's reign was Isaiah, son of Amos. And what we find in Isaiah chapter 6 is almost the exact opposite. If Uzziah is an example of the, the destruction and shame that comes from forgetting God, Isaiah on the other side. I'm going to try not to get those mixed up. Uzziah, Isaiah, it's a tongue twister. I'll see what I can do. Uzziah, shame and destruction from forgetting God. Isaiah, we see in chapter 6, is the grace and transformation that happens when God reveals himself to his people and shows them how great he is. 
In chapter 6, Isaiah gives us, recounts to us an experience that he had in the year that King Uzziah died. And even though it's here in chapter 6, most likely the account of what happens here happened before everything that Isaiah said in chapters 1 through 5. It's as though as Isaiah is arranging his life's work in this book, he says, let me give you my opening sermon first, set up the problem, tell you why it's so important that you need to remember who your God is, and now let me give you my backstory. Let me show you what God did with me, because what God did with me is what needs to happen with all of us. Does that make sense? This is, I am, I am equal parts excited and intimidated to preach this passage because it is one of the most majestic in all of Scripture. Would you stand with me? We're going to read Isaiah 6. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train or the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called or shouted to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places that are, are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump is, remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're going to spend the next two weeks in this chapter. This week, we're going to focus ourselves in verses 1-8. through eight, And then next week, we'll come back and pick up verse 8 through the rest of the chapter. 
But if you will, let's move through this. We're going to take a look at what Isaiah experienced in this. And then we're going to, as we go along, we're going to apply it to our own lives. I'm going to ask you some questions as we go along. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, that same guy with the leprosy that broke out that we just heard about, the same guy that Isaiah was the recorder for, when he died, he has this vision of the Lord. And the word that he uses here is not, as you notice in your Bibles, it's not the capital L-O-R-D. This is not the divine name Yahweh. This is the word the Adonai, which means ruler or master. And he uses this very purposely. He's like, I know this long-term 52-year king that we've all placed our hope and our stability in is gone. But guys, I've seen the real master, the real sovereign. And guess what? He's still on the throne, sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train or the hem of his robe filled the temple. It's as though as Isaiah sees this vision, it's so great and so amazing that he cannot bring himself, or perhaps words cannot carry him, to explain anything other than like the very bottom of what he sees. He can't really go above street level. He says, guys, this was so big, I can't put words to it, but let me tell you this. Just the hem, just the bottom of his robe was enough to fill the entire temple. Yes, the hem of God's robe fills the temple. Why? Because the glory of the Lord fills the entire earth. This is how massive and huge our God is. And then in verse 2, we meet these really interesting creatures called seraphim. They're some sort of angelic spiritual being that's, that exists to stand in God's presence. And it's interesting because it says that they stood above him. Not because in some way they're more glorious than him, they're greater than him. But it's the picture of a king seated in his throne room with his attendants standing at either side, ready to do his bidding ready to execute his will. They stand in attention, and he's the one seated at the throne. The things that's so amazing to me about these guys is their name literally means the burning ones. Seraph is just it's the word that means to burn. It's the, I don't know if it means that they were literally on fire or just that they, they just radiated with such intense brightness because they were in such close proximity to God's presence. But in some ways, this fits, doesn't it, with the way that, that God's presence often appears in the Old Testament as a burning bush with Moses at the beginning of the book of Exodus, as an entire mountain engulfed in flames later on at Mount Sinai, as a pillar of fire that stood over the tabernacle and guided the people through the wilderness. It's appropriate that the ones that are sitting at either side of God's presence are burning with the intensity of His glory. Yet even these holy beings dare not look God directly in the face. With these six wings that they have, two of them they use to cover their faces because His glory, His holiness is too much for even them to look at. And they keep on shouting out in probably a mixture of just dread and delight that this God is holy, holy, holy. What does that mean? What is this word that these seraphim found so appropriate to describe the essence of God's being that they say it over and over and over? Well, 
at its root, the idea of holy, so for something to be holy, simply means that it's separate, that it's other, that it's distinct, that it is different from everything else or from other things around them. When they speak of God as holy, 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 they say you are utterly unique and unlike anything and everything else that exists. None can compare with you, God. I guess if you were to boil it down, the most essential distinction between God and everything else is that God is the creator of everything else. Everything else exists as the the product of His speech, speaking it into existence. It and us and everything is creation. He alone is unique as creator. He is other, different, distinct. But not only does the holiness of God speak of his utter separateness, it also speaks of his perfect greatness. Not only is he different, he is perfectly different. It is the perfection of his character. Some of us have spent time studying what is often referred to as the attributes of God. His grace, his power, his wisdom, and so forth. And sometimes it's easy to think that holiness is just another item on that list of things that describe God. But I came across a quote this week that I think is so helpful in this from a guy named Brian Hedges. He says this. He says, holiness is not merely one of many attributes of God. It is the sum and substance of all of the attributes. All of God's perfections are holy perfections. Holiness is the beauty the splendor, the fearful symmetry of God's infinitely flawless character. Yes, he is powerful, but his power is holy power. It is perfect. Yes, he is wise, and his wisdom is holy. Even his wrath is holy. The fact that the seraphim find it appropriate to say this three times, this number that represents completeness and perfection, It means that God is not only a holy thing, He is the the epicenter from which all and any other kind of holiness radiates. I mean, think about the, the rooms of the temple that the people of Israel had. That first big room with the altar of incense and the, 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 the lampstand and things was called the holy place. But then there was that square-shaped room that had the altar or the Ark of the Covenant in it, which was called the Holy of Holies. You have a holy place, and then you have a holy of holies. Why? Because the holy, holy, holy one dwells there. Perhaps one of the greatest quotes I've come across about God's holiness comes from A.W. Tozer when he says this. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. He probably went through the whole thesaurus on that one. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire His wisdom, but His holiness he cannot even imagine. And yet in this chapter, we find Isaiah, this natural man, not having to imagine the holiness of God. 
but finding himself rather unexpectedly and unintentionally in the presence of the Holy, Holy, Holy One. It has such an effect on Isaiah for the rest of his book. He has a rather unique title for God. He continually refers to God as the Holy One of Israel, 26 times over the course of the book. That same phrase only occurs five or six times in the whole rest of the Old Testament. This is Isaiah's own kind of personalized title for God, and it all stems from this encounter right here. So here's the question I want to ask you. Have you encountered this holy God? Do you know him? Perhaps you had some sort of profound experience in your life that was similar to Isaiah. But understand this. This is really important. We always evaluate our experiences according to God's Word. Do you agree? We always evaluate our experiences of God according to His Word. This is God's true, tested, revealed, reliable revelation of Himself. If your experience with God, of God, if an experience that you have that you think is of God contradicts what God has revealed of himself in this word, I'm not doubting that you had an experience, but what I'm telling you is that it was not an experience of the God of the Bible. I do not doubt that a man like Muhammad or a man like Joseph Smith had very real experiences that they believed were from God. But because what they was revealed to those singular individuals contradicted what God had revealed to at least 40 different authors and millions of people over about 2,000 years, because it contradicted all of that, it is not the same as the God of the Bible. So, Paul is very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we encounter the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ through the gospel, through the word of God. So let me ask you this question again. Have you encountered the God of the Bible in and through and according to the Bible? Maybe you read Isaiah chapter 6 and, and you honestly get a little envious. Shoot, man, I wish I could experience something like that. I mean, it would be so much easier to believe this whole Christianity thing is true if God would show me something like that. Maybe for some of you, you've moved past envy to the point of making demands of God. Almost to say, okay, God, if you really want me to follow you, if you really want my vote, you want me on your team, then you will reveal yourself to me like this. Otherwise, I am justified to reject you. And if that's where you find yourself, in that hardened place, I would say be very careful. Do you really want to dictate terms to this holy, holy God? Doesn't this sound a bit like Uzziah? Presuming that he had the right of access to God that he had no right to presume. How did that work out for him? At the same time, though, I would say for many of us in here, isn't there something familiar about this passage? I mean, not that we've necessarily had an experience on the scale that Isaiah had. We're never promised that in Scripture, at least not yet. The promise of Revelation 22 is that for those who trust in Jesus Christ, one day we really will see God face to face. 
That's where we're going. We're, we're not there yet, though. At the same time, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, isn't it true that in some way, at some time, God did open our eyes to see who He was, to grasp that He's real, to catch a glimpse of His glory. And just like Isaiah, it changed the whole course of our lives, didn't it? Gosh, thank you, God, for that. Have you encountered the Holy One of Israel? One way to know is by asking you the second question. Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to the point of despairing in your own goodness, your own ability to work your way to God on your own, to prove your goodness to others? Understand this. When Isaiah encountered this holy, holy, holy God, the one overriding response that he had was absolute terror. Completely dismantling, coming apart at the seams. Terror. Look at this. Verse 5. He sees all this and hears all this and he says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. That phrase, woe is me. I had a Bible call uh, teacher in high school who used to joke that, that Jesus had a horse and its name was to you because he would always say, woe to you. And that was the name of his horse. And so I guess Isaiah's horse would be called, is me. But no, the, the whole idea of this woe is not calling a horse to slow down. That W-O-E, it's the prophetic utterance of doom. It means destruction. He means I am ruined. I am lost. Because in the blazing light of God's holiness, for the first time, not only did I see Isaiah see God like never before, he saw himself like never before. He simultaneously saw the depth of his sin and wickedness like never before. His only response in light of the holiness of God is to say, he is holy and I am unclean. And not only am I unclean, all of us are unclean. By speaking of lips there, unclean lips, I think it's very similar to what Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6 where he talked about how out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That in many ways, the lips are representative for the condition of the whole man. He says, I am unclean. Everything about me is unclean and I've seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He knows his Bible. He knows that it's not safe for sinful people to be too close to a holy God. It's like getting too close to the sun. We depend upon the sun for life and heat and to make things work here on our planet. But if our planet was even a little bit closer than the 92.96 million miles away that it is, we would all fry like an egg. And Isaiah is going, this cannot be good for me to be this close to the holy, holy, holy God. It's amazing. He offers no plea for escape or mercy. He doesn't say, God, I didn't mean to be here. I don't know how I got here. Please don't kill me. All he says is, this must be the end of me. There can be no other logical conclusion from this experience than the end of me. If even Uzziah the king was struck with leprosy for drawing too close to the temple, there's no way that this can be safe for me. But it's amazing as we continue, God had a better purpose, a different purpose than to destroy Isaiah. But before we get to that good purpose, let's sit here for a second. 
I asked you before, have you encountered this holy God? And I ask you now, in encountering this holy God, have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to that point of despairing of anything within you that can make your situation better? Any pretense or illusion of Isaiah's own goodness or control over his life vanished. And in the grandeur and purity of who God was, all Isaiah saw was his smallness, his weakness, and his sinfulness. Have you encountered that? Have you experienced that? Or do you still hold on to the illusion that you are somehow the master of your own fate? The captain of your own soul? In coming to God, or maybe even coming here to Cornerstone, have you come to God as a consultant to help you reach your goals? Or have you now come to the point of seeing that any goal that you have for your life that does not begin and end with Him is ultimately pointless? Some of you, are you still in negotiations with God? Are you still trying to work out some sort of shared custody agreement with Him where you can retain control over certain areas of your life? Some of you, do you honestly think that in some ways God's fortunate to have you on the team? I bring a lot to this whole thing, God. And so if you don't, if you don't meet my expectations, if you don't do things the way that I'd like you to, I may just take my services elsewhere. I don't know if any of us would have the gall to say that out loud. It's even a little makes me nervous to have said that by way of illustration. But guys, understand this. Coming to this holy, holy, holy God in faith is to come to Him in complete surrender and resignation, saying, you are the King and I am not. You are holy, 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 and I am not, not, not. I deserve nothing from you, but pure, unmitigated wrath. I bring nothing to you, and I am lost. I am at the end of myself, because it's right there at the end of himself that Isaiah is given a new beginning. Oh, look at verse 6. This is incredible. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. You may have seen the art installation in the lobby as you walked in depicting the same scene. At the moment at which Isaiah has despaired of all hope in his own goodness, all hope of even surviving this encounter, the seraph comes to him with a coal from the altar. And this is so significant. Get this. The altar was the place where atonement was made for the people of sin. That's a big old word. Basically just means this. It's where their sins were covered through a sacrifice, where the justice of God was satisfied so that their relationship with God could be restored. And this is so monumental. Please don't miss this. Every other time in the Bible up to this point right here, it's the people who bring the offering of a bull or a goat or a dove or something like that, which then the priest sacrifices on the altar to make the atonement. But here in Isaiah 6, Isaiah has nothing to bring to the altar and nothing is asked of him. Do you see this? For the first time in the biblical story, the direction of this whole transaction is reversed. Isaiah doesn't bring anything to the altar. The seraph takes something from the altar and brings it to him. 
He takes this coal, this immensely, not just hot, but holy thing that even this holy seraph cannot hold in his own hand, so he's got it in tongs. And he brings it, and he touches Isaiah's lips with the coal, and he sears his lips with the holy heat of that coal, and he says, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This is amazing. This is grace. The seraph says, justice has been satisfied. Your relationship with God has been reconciled. You came in here as a man with unclean lips, but you are clean now. Not only will you not be destroyed by this encounter, it is now, by the grace of God, safe for you to be here. Do you grasp how gigantic that is? God didn't bring Isaiah into his presence to destroy him, but to purify him. Isaiah didn't come to try to clean himself up. He wasn't asked to. He couldn't have if he tried. He was made holy only by this encounter with the Holy One of Israel. It was, from beginning to end, an act of God's sovereign grace. Do you know what that's like? Have you been seared by the grace of God? The thing that's so amazing about this is I think in, in so many ways, this picture, this symbol of the coal that the seraph uses to cleanse Isaiah's lips, in many ways I would say is symbolic of Jesus Christ Himself. This one who comes from the holy presence of God into the sinful world. It's really the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking on flesh, becoming a man, is in many ways the direct reversal of Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 6, one sinful man is brought into the presence of a holy God. In the person of Jesus Christ, the holy God comes into the presence of sinful men. And not only is he not defiled by our uncleanness, he comes to those who are unclean, those with leprosy, those with different diseases, and his holy presence cleanses and heals them. When he comes to those who are oppressed by evil spirits, often called unclean spirits, you know how those unclean spirits most often refer to him? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Using almost the same words that Isaiah uses. And as we sang in that song, the demons run and flee from the holy presence of Jesus Christ. Amen? Most importantly, when Jesus died on the cross, as Isaiah writes later in chapter 53, the Lord laid upon this holy Son of God the iniquity of us all, that He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was chastised so that we might have peace. That by His stripes we can be healed. Understand this this morning. By faith in Jesus Christ, what the seraph said to Isaiah can be said of us. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Praise God. Do you know what that's like? Have you experienced this? Do you know the joy, the relief of having your sin, your rebellion, your self-righteousness, your pride, the whole mess of who you are taken and cleansed and healed by Jesus Christ?
And if you have experienced that, do you realize how clean you are now? How holy God has made you? Gosh, there's something, may no more powerful illustration of this be than what Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that the unrighteousness, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor reviles, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All those bad people that we like to think are out there. And then he says this in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is what it means to be made holy by a holy God. Not that we somehow think we're better than others in a self-righteous way, but we know that for all of our sin, for all the uncleanness of our lips, we have been washed and sanctified and justified by the grace of God. For those of us who trust in Jesus, God's grace not only purifies us initially and definitively, but ongoingly. One way to know that you've encountered this grace of God is that you continue to turn from sin. That sinful habits and actions that used to just be your native tongue, the, the, the natural way you operated, you find increasingly becoming foreign and unnatural to you. And new godly desires taking their place. Galatians 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit, the Holy One God Himself, dwells within us to wage war with our sinful desires and to bring His holy fruit to life in our words and actions. By contrast, though, if you find yourself at home with your sin, okay with your sin, coddling it and justifying it and protecting it, Have you actually experienced God's grace? Have you actually encountered the Holy One of God? Have you actually come to the end of yourself? If not, I pray that God may do this today in your life, in your heart. I came across a quote from Sinclair Ferguson that I think perfectly summarizes what happened to Isaiah. Listen to what he says. He said, to sanctify or to make holy means that God repossesses persons and things that have been devoted to other uses and have been possessed for purposes other than His glory. And He takes them into His own possession in order that they may reflect His own glory. That's what happens to Isaiah here in chapter 6. He is repossessed by God and repurposed by God for His purposes. Look at verse 8. For the first time in this chapter, we hear God Himself speak. And the Lord, the King, the Holy One says, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. I wonder what His voice sounded like in this whole grand scene. Right? Like, was it that, like, like in a dream when you try to shout really loud to warn somebody of something, but it only comes out as a whisper? Because it's just so grand what He's seeing? The other thing I was thinking about was, remember that old movie from the, I think it was the 90s, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? When the one kid is like floating in the Cheerios that his dad's eating, and his dad's about to take the bite, so he's shouting, and he goes, Dad, don't eat me! He's like shouting at the top of his lungs because he's so tiny, his dad can't even hear him. 
Is that what it was like for Isaiah here? He feels like this little tiny ant in this whole scene. So he's like, I better shout at the top of my lungs in order to even have a chance of being heard by one so grand. But either way, his voice is heard and he is enlisted into God's service. He is so overwhelmed by the grandeur of who God is and by gratitude for how God had purified him that he jumps at the first opportunity to serve God. And get this, he doesn't even know what the job is yet. I'll do it. What's the job? And that's what we're going to look at next week, what God then calls Isaiah to do. But before, before we do that, we're saving that for next week because I think this is so key. For those of us who have experienced this holy God, who've been cleansed by his grace, have you offered yourself in his service? Isaiah doesn't come with a list of preferred options. He doesn't come and say, well, based upon the spiritual gifts test I took at my last church, based upon my Enneagram number, based upon my hours of availability, here are the things that I would be willing to do for you. It's not a matter of what he wants to do for God. He offers himself first to God and in effect says, whatever it is, I'll do it. Wherever you tell me to go, I'll go. You are king. You are holy. You've made me holy. You've repossessed me for your purposes. So here I am. Send me. Have you done that? Have you offered yourself in service to the King of Kings? Not working to try to earn his approval, but understand you've been seared and cleansed by his grace. Now we work from his approval, out of the approval that we have by grace through Jesus Christ. We don't ask God to bankroll our dreams and help us achieve what we want. We offer ourselves to him and say, wherever it is, even if it's right here where you've placed me right now, here I am, send me. Some of you, God is calling you to something new. You may not even have clarity on what it is. You may, but you guys will just go, man, I know that the way that my life is going right now, the places where I've put myself, either I think God's leading me onto something different or I realize that I'm just here because it's comfortable and works for me. Are you willing to come before this king and say whatever it is, even if it appeases all my plans, here I am, send me. Maybe some of you are like where I found myself this week. Just a little bit weary and tired. I feel like my life has been decidedly unvaried for this last season, this, this most recent season. Same thing again. Reading, researching, writing, having meetings to talk about what I've been reading, researching and writing, go home, sleep, do it again. And I found myself just getting very, honestly, discontented. And it was as we were talking about this in sermon prep this week that even Todd was like, do you realize that's a discontentment with God, not just what you're doing? Really? God, seriously, am I, am I getting kind of crabby and angsty and wanderlusty because really at the end of the day, I've lost sight of the fact that I get to serve you? I get to serve you and serve your people and what I do? Forgive me. I found myself, again, coming before this holy God saying, in the very same things that I'm doing, without changing anything other than my attitude and my heart, here I am, send me. Wherever you may be in that, what, here's the way that I want us to end this morning. I'm going to put these same questions that I've been asking you up on the screen. We're going to take two or three minutes before we sing one last song together. And I want you to spend some time praying through these same things with the Lord. Now, one of the rules of discussion questions is you never want to write them as yes or no questions. And I've actually written all four of these as yes or no questions. But I actually think that's important. The dichotomy, the black or white, on or off, yes or no nature of it is I think where we all need to wrestle. Not first in conversation with others. Because they'll quickly lay us off the hook and go, oh, yo, yo, I see you. You're doing all right. 
No, seriously, between you and the Lord, start a conversation you probably won't finish by the time we start singing. Lord, have I truly encountered you? Have I truly come to the end of myself or am I still trusting myself? Have I, do I truly believe that I am cleansed and purified by your grace and am I willing to go and do whatever you as my king call me to do? These next couple of minutes are yours and then we'll, we'll finish by singing together. Thank you, guys.